transgeneral is recorded on stolen land that rightfully belongs to the Walla medical people, who have called this land home for countless generations and were displaced by European genocide. So-called Australia is a colonial settlement. The sovereignty of this land was never ceded. Reparations have been paltry and disgustingly tokenistic, and this is, was, and always will be Aboriginal land. I pay my respects to the elders of the Walla medical people, past, present, and emerging. Hey everyone, today I want to talk to you all about trauma. I was prompted to do this by the episode Growing Pains of Stephen Universe Future, which sent me spiralling only half an hour before I wrote down this sentence that I'm now reading out. This episode needs a few content warnings, so here they are. Sexual harassment, sexual assault, and child abuse. This episode is my confession, as well as my letter of hope. Some people, people like me, have feet that are so full of thorns that they do not know what you mean when you ask them if it hurts, and they will react like panicked wild animals if you forcefully try to pull any of those thorns out. I truly believe that nobody is unsalvageable, but I am testament to how a burdened soul will leave the hands of saviors sliced through. I feel like this episode, much more than the others I am working on, is quite the reflection of my soul. I use a lot of absolutist words, betraying my black and white nature of my autistic mind, and I feel like it truly is just an immutable part of me. I've been criticized heavily for many things, and that was very much one of them, but I never knew how to channel my need for the world to have rigidity, structure, and a sense of what is true and what is false with capital T and F. Clearly, I've found such black and whiteness in my rejection of authority and my embracing of indigenous cultures. If I can simply decry the methods and beliefs of my enemies and lift up others and say it is they who are correct and we need to listen to them, then I do not have to worry so much about the many flaws of my personal reasoning. While I have a decent number of answers for how this world should actually be, I have so very many more criticisms of the way it is and such a passion to burn it down and begin anew. So, with the opening out of the way, welcome back to Transgeneral. So, today we're going to be talking about my life, I guess. It's a very small excerpt of it. I used to think that I didn't really have much of a story to tell, but the first time I told someone, like, a fairly detailed, like, here's what happened in my life, the first thing they said to me afterwards was, I'm so sorry. And it kind of confused me. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it, I guess... When you're raised in an abusive situation and you see on TV 
like these situations that are like definitely abusive and you know that the like people and families around you like they're being abused too everything seems so very normal and yeah I guess I just want to talk about this beforehand because this is going to be a doozy of an episode and I might have to split it into two parts. That's something that was suggested to me by someone I got to proofread the script. Um, just because it's so fucking emotional and it's probably going to take a lot out of me to record it. But I'm going to do my best and hopefully we can just get through this in one shot. Okay, here goes. When I was a child, I was lonely. While I may have had my train sets and my middle class parents, I did not have friends. I did not know how to make friends. At preschool, I was bullied by other children and I did not understand why. I would react in impulsive manners that would sate my base instinct to hurt those that hurt me. I would bite hard enough to draw blood and when asked why I did it, I would not be able to give reasons because I was running on pure emotion. Many autistic people have alexithymia, which is an inability to identify or describe emotions being experienced by yourself or others. In spite of my behavioral problems, my parents decided to have more children. My mother tells me this was my idea, which I find quite entertaining. Imagine having more children because an autistic three-year-old with sensory overload issues asked you to. The worst possible outcome for me would have been my parents having twins, and that's exactly what happened. My sibling and my sister were sensory nightmares and I hated them before they could even speak. My mother recently told me about how I once poured sand down my sibling's throat and about how I would hurt them to make them stop talking. What looked to my mother like mere cruelty, I can now see with perfect clarity. I was a distressed autistic child reacting to sensory overload in a sadistic manner. My mother loves to justify why my father would beat me by talking about how I would react to my siblings, usually specifically to my sibling Artemis. Artemis has ADHD. I have autism and ADHD with a multitude of sensory issues. To say we were a terrible matchup would be an understatement. Because of how my brain works, my ADHD focuses on even the most trivial of sounds and forces me to process them as if I was paying attention. And my autism and auditory processing issues make this deeply unpleasant. I would often tell Artemis to shut up. And when they were unable to stop talking without finishing their thoughts, I would hit them because crying was preferable to talking. Crying is like white noise. Talking forces me to process information, which is exhausting when you have little executive memory and auditory processing issues. My parents never cared to actually know why I was like this. My mother decided that I was a psychopath instead of trying to understand why I'd become so cruel. My sensory issues were never taken seriously and I was forced into the public schooling system after my parents tokenistically tried to get me into a single school that could have dealt with my needs. I was rejected from said school because they did not see a child needing help. I was far too verbally proficient for them. I hate the idea of an intelligent quotient for many reasons, especially how it serves to only celebrate a certain type of intelligence used to, useful to capitalism and industry. But I suppose the biggest reason is because it hurt me personally and was used to keep me from adequate care. Once my siblings were born, I was even lonelier. My parents were constantly taking care of them and I was neglected in intention on top of the already persistent emotional neglect. 
My neglect grew so profound that I began to search for a secondary caregiver in the form of a girlfriend. Yes, I was four years old and I decided that what I needed was a girlfriend. I asked quite a few girls if they would be my girlfriend, but I was surprisingly discerning about it considering the obsession I can remember still. When I was six, I finally met a girl who I really liked and she really liked me. We would spend a lot of time together, at school during lunchtime, at her house, in a pool, and sometimes if we were sure we wouldn't be caught, cuddling and kissing under her trampoline. She was the only source of physical affection I felt love from. I did not want physical affection from the people who hurt me out of frustration. My parents lamented that I never wanted to hug them and treated me like some sort of strange recluse who eschewed physical contact. The truth was quite the opposite. I craved touch more than anything. I simply could not accept it from those who would hurt me. I did not have the kind of mind required for double think. And so as a child, I rejected the claim that my abusers loved me and I found no warmth in their embrace especially not after my father showed me how it felt to be rejected and abandoned. The first time that happened is seared into my mind clear as day even after 18 years. I was being disruptive during prayer time because I was sensorily overloaded and did not want to hear any more words. My father pulled over the car and told me to get out. I said no and cowered as he reached over me and wrenched the door open. This time he screamed at me to get out with his face so very close to mine that it made my ears ring. I got out of the car and I watched him drive away. I don't know how long I stood there crying in my emotional hurricane, but eventually my soul began to calcify and I found the strength to walk towards my nonna's house in spite of how far it was and what a horrible thing had just been done to me. I was seven years old. When I talk to my psychologist, we talk about the internal family system model of understanding your own emotions, understanding your, your inner child, basically. And when I imagine my inner child, I imagine him walking on side that road. I imagine him walking on the side of a road that has no guardrail and 20 meters down, there are lantana weeds everywhere, which, you know, if you don't know what lantana is, I guess it's kind of like brambles. That's because that's, that's what that road was. It was nowhere near my house. It was nowhere near my nonna's house. It was a scary place to be. It was honestly one of the scariest roads I could have been dropped off on. And when I imagine it, I, I imagine holding my hand and being there for myself because it's, it's really what I need. It's really what my inner child needs is the idea that someone was there for me. The idea that I'm there for me. I'm going to take a little break. been a few minutes. I had some Coke Zero. It's delicious. It's not that good. Um, but I'm just, I got a bit of a caffeine problem, I guess. Um, yeah, I can keep going.
I don't know where to slot this part in because there never was a start or end to my father beating me. It was simply something that happened whenever my autistic meltdowns got too out of control for his taste. Sometimes it was because I hit Artemis, but sometimes it was because I yelled at my father too much. Or the time I put a wheelbarrow behind his car so he backed into it on his way to work for some vindictive reason. He, like, I'm not saying he didn't deserve it. I'm saying I was a very vindictive child full of vengeful thoughts. The beatings would start with a punch to the head hard enough to knock me to the ground. And they would either continue there or he would yell at me to get up. I knew this was a trap and that if I stood up, he would knock me down again. So I would try and kick him in the balls instead and he would kick me in the ribs for daring to. My mother would profess in all her pious bullshit to believe that pacifism is correct and hitting children is wrong, but she would never even attempt to stop my father. With perfect hindsight, I can now say my only regret was not fighting back as hard as I could. I should have bit him, I should have scratched him, I should have baited him into making it obvious that he was abusing his child by hitting me hard enough to leave a bigger bruise than those expected of scrappy young boys being boys. Let's go back to talking about the good stuff. It was my girlfriend's mother that instilled my love of geology in me. The entire house was adorned with beautiful specimens from across the world. Amethyst geodes as tall as my tiny self would stand in hallways like sentinels. She would always be so impressed anytime I would tell her a new fact I had learned in my knowledge-devouring time that I spent at home with my eyes glued to a monitor. My girlfriend's mother was definitely a surrogate mother to me, and I have such fond memories of the unconditional love she showed me. In spite of how badly damaged the isolation, neglect, and bullying had already made me, the kindness from my girlfriend and her mother was such a shining light in my life. It was at nine that I first experienced heartbreak when my parents declared we would be moving away. They decided that it was time to spread their cult to places that had not yet taken root. Truly such paragons of caregivers they were to uproot an autistic child who was finally acclimating for their own selfish motives. My parents did not see what I had as special and once we'd moved away, I never saw my girlfriend again. Let's talk about my parents' cult a little. They're members of the Baha'i faith, an Abrahamic cult. I don't use the word cult lightly. It truly is a cult, no matter how many fluffy and light-hearted Baha'is you've met. You are not allowed to question scripture. You are not allowed to conjecture about meanings. And if you do either of these things, you may find yourself excommunicated as a covenant breaker. You are not allowed to have sex outside of marriage. You are not allowed to drink. And smoking is frowned upon in such a way that you've basically put a target on your own back by doing it. Because of how their communities function, that is to say, like a cult, being excommunicated usually means losing your entire support network. You're encouraged to only make true friendships and seek romance within the Baha'i faith, or if you might be able to convert someone to the Baha'i faith. Their Supreme Council, the Universal House of Justice, does not allow women on the council. The explanation for why a so-called religion that pretends to be truly equal in its treating of men and women would do such a thing is that it will in time become clear. That's right, sexism will make sense in the future, so shut up and take it on the chin. They also love to talk about equality, but do not support queer marriage. In fact, queer people are seen as aberrations within the community. They don't really like to talk about it, and they really hate it when other people talk about it, but they are homophobic as fuck. 
My mother was the one to instill all of my homophobia in me as a child, and she did so using concepts like what is natural or pious. Lastly, the Baha'i faith is a cult because they are millenarian. And the definition of millenarian is believing that there will be one day a great upheaval and change. The Baha'i faith has a core belief that one day every government will come to ruin and the universal house of justice will become the new world order. That's right, they want to take over the fucking world. Surprise, surprise. Before we get back to talking about my life, I want to point out how fucking creepy and cultish they are. This is just one example. I have many more. Not from the communities I was in, though. This one is from the Wollongong Baha'i community. There was a couple in that community who started dating, and to make sure that they weren't having premarital sex, the Wollongong Baha'i Council hired a private investigator using funds that had been donated to them. Isn't that just lovely? What a lovely little religion, right? They wouldn't let me stop being a member of the Baha'i faith, that is to say, take me off the books until they first pestered me multiple times when I came of age at 15 and said no. <sighs> anyway, once I'd been moved for cult reasons, I was once again dropped into a public school and the bullying was so much worse than what I'd received prior. I was in fourth grade and I was an effeminate autistic city kid in a town of 2000. I know now that I was a tomboy or a girl boy. I don't know, whatever label you want to use for it. I hung out with the girls, but I was extremely not acting like a girl at all. Or that is to say, not acting like a girl. If you Can you hear the quotation marks? Um, anyway. To my bullies, though, I was just a faggot in spite of my ostensible heterosexuality. After a while, I tried to move on from how empty I felt at no longer having the affection of my childhood girlfriend or her mother, and a girl showed interest in me, and I liked her well enough. A teacher caught us passing notes one day and decided to read them out to the class. This girl liked me, but she didn't like me enough to endure the same bullying I'd faced, and she told me it was over. I grew colder and more distant than ever. I was filled with such loneliness and such rage at how I was being mistreated by my peers. Where I was once merely a child who would punctuate the end of bullying with a bite, I became a warrior. I became a vengeful person who would hold grudges as long as I felt I had not had my pound of flesh. My bullies backed off a little, but I was bearing the brunt of authority for my exacting of what I saw as justice. I already distrusted and hated authority because of how people would tell me what to do and not tell me why, and then they would get angry at me for not simply following their orders. A new contempt for authority was bred in my soul by how I was now being punished for fighting back against my own fucking bullies. I was furious. I couldn't believe that these people who I'd been told were my protectors were actually persecutors in their own ways. When I was 11, two things happened. The first was a singular event that truly embodied my mother's entire stance on sexuality. One day I came home, having left my computer unlocked, to find that my mother had gone through everything. She had deleted every single song with a sexual reference. Literally all of them. In a hodgepodge catalogue of 2000. When I asked why, she told me those songs were disgusting. They were singing about sex. 
One of those songs was about how Fergie is so delicious that she wants men to eat her. You know, she's old enough to be your mother. I know that what my mother was trying to say was that finding a woman attractive if she is significantly older than me was wrong. But unfortunately for her, all I took away from that interaction was that my mother is a creep who sees sex as synonymous with shame. Like, I didn't, I didn't know that thought. I just I felt a fuck ton of shame. And also my small lesbian brain had the snap thought that women who are old enough to be my mother can be really fucking hot. I don't think my mother's plan was to give me a thing for older women, but these days I sure do love dating women that are much older than me. Sorry, mom. Anyway, the second thing to happen when I was 11 could be described as my parents pulling me out of the frying pan and then throwing me into a fucking blast furnace. I was sent to boarding school. If public school was hell, then boarding school was truly the ninth fucking circle. Boarding school, but the things I do remember make me glad for this. I remember quite soon after I got there, I was told by a group of boys that we would be going blackberry picking down in the little, there was this giant fucking area that had a creek flowing through it. It was the best part, actually. It was my reprieve from boarding school. I could just go into nature. I loved creeks. I would go swimming and leeches would get on me and then I would take the leeches and I'd put them in a little water bottle and I'd keep them in my room until I got found out every fucking time. Anyway, we went blackberry picking and while we were picking, one of them encouraged me to try them, saying they were quite good. In my naivete, I did. They were good. It was next day that I found out they'd been sprayed not half an hour before I picked them. Not at all shockingly, I was the only person in the infirmary because no one else had eaten blackberries. The next two days were physically the most painful and agonizing of my life. I'll spare you the details, but suffice to say the gastrointestinal tract does not take kindly to herbicide. My body was different from everyone else's and the way it was maturing was strange. My spine curved outwards and my butt was filling out to an exceptionally feminine degree. When I was going to and from the showers, I felt compelled by something deep inside me to keep my towel up around my chest. And of course, I was just harassed more for this. I knew I was different, I just didn't have the words. And I didn't know my own feelings. It's not like it was my fault that they sexually harassed me, but to me it felt like it would have been avoided had my body been more typical, and so I started hating my body. But what really sealed the self-hatred and disgust that I began to feel for myself was that time on the tennis court. I've tried to re-record this section a few times, and I keep stuttering, and so I'm sorry, I'm probably just going to try and chop it together and make it sound as good as it can, but I... Um, uh, back to the recording. I was asked to come join some kind of game. They'd made some kind of game out of being naked while playing badminton, and the whole class was doing it. For the first few minutes after I arrived, two of my classmates who had never bullied me before were convincing me that I should join in. They were fully clothed themselves, so it sure did take a lot of peer pressure to get past my skepticism. Eventually, I did stand up and take off my clothes and do a run around the court, as they had suggested I do in lieu of actually joining in and being naked for a prolonged amount of time. I was maybe halfway around the court before people stopped being able to stifle their laughter. The joke being played on me became clear. There was no equality in how we were all naked, for I was the freak. 
Boys jeered and laughed at me, and though I do not remember the specificity of their comments about my figure, I know that the implication was that I was not a boy and that I was most certainly not a man. These comments ignited feelings that I, of course, did not understand. There was something strange about how being told I was a woman made me feel. It made me feel good, and even in that harrowing moment, it gave me some comfort. There was also something about this humiliation and shame that was arousing. I know now that this was due to the link between my sexuality and shame instilled in me by my own mother, but I sure as fuck was confused in the moment as I tried not to cry. I got my first erection in front of a dozen cruel boys who had never let me live it down, and I really don't want to say the rest of what happened that day. I was expelled not long after for throwing a chair at a member of the Murdoch family. And I'm sure it's no surprise to anyone familiar with the Murdochs that he was an entitled bullying prick who deserved that chair to the face. I was then homeschooled by a private tutor for the rest of the time until high school. I liked her, she was pretty and she was nice, and I definitely fixated on her as a caregiver and as someone that stirred up my blossoming twisted sexuality. Sometimes, if she could see how overwhelmed the work was making me, we would sit on the two-seat couch and watch some episodes of Bewitched together. Those were such calming moments and the closest thing to a comforting physical affection I'd gotten in so many years. After the rest of that year, it was time for me to go to high school. Once again, my parents decided to stick me in a public school because I sure did do well last time. I was still the weird kid, but this time I found the other weird kids and made friends. This one kid, Adam, I would just follow him around in my natural mimic state. One day, seemingly from nowhere, he made an extremely sexual comment about a girl. I didn't think much of it. The comment was benign and nobody else was around. It wasn't a one-off incident though. He started gradually making more and more explicit comments in more and more public settings and encouraging me to do the same. If I had to describe the feeling of having your personal disgust eroded away day by day, I suppose I might liken it to how the shifting Overton window of politics works. Adam was my only friend in this high school, and so in my mind I had no other option but to understand why this behaviour that so reminded me of my own harassment was seemingly okay. This was perhaps the first time I engaged in double think, and it took a lot of effort but after not all that much time, I was sexually harassing girls just the same as he was. Only perhaps a few months passed before I was now engaging in sexual harassment of girls without Adam having to even be present. I started internalizing sexist beliefs that justified why I was allowed to be cru so cruel and disgusting without being a monster. I was still keen to be the class clowns so that I might escape the ire of some of my peers, but that came at the cost of turning every teacher's good faith against me. At the end of my first year of high school, my parents were strongly encouraged to find another school, and with the hindsight I have now, I can say that it was perhaps the best decision they've ever made. I was enrolled in a Montessori school, a type of school that allows children to self-educate in many respects and does not rely so much on hierarchy to make children fall into line. I turned down the sexual harassment, but the underlying obsession and harmful beliefs remained. I was especially obsessed with one girl whom I liked because she was pretty, because she was smart, and because she had a temper, which is apparently something I found attractive, probably because all of the people in my life who would take their anger out on me, which led to an association between someone who unleashes their anger and someone I wanted to care for me.
I didn't stop pestering and harassing her to be my girlfriend until a very kind teacher spelled it out to me quite bluntly that I had to stop. The teacher asked me why I was doing this and what did I hope to accomplish? Such simple questions and yet they became the start of me fixing myself. She made me feel rightfully ashamed for my actions and what a powerful tool that emotion was when used correctly. In many ways, I was still terrible and I'm so sorry to everyone who had to put up with who I was, but at least something was changing. I had setbacks while at Montessori. There was a guy two years older than me who took it upon himself to be my bully and there was a guy two years younger than me that I paid that cruelty forward to. Bullying begets bullies. As much praise as I do have for the Montessori system in comparison to the usual model, I have much to say about its complete and total lack of discipline for bad actors. I was not disciplined enough. The teachers could see that I was fucked up and there was nothing they could do in such a school. The school ran on the assumption that you show children kindness and they will right themselves. I don't remember a single time either I nor my bully was suspended. When I was 14, he found it rather funny to hold me down on a couch and pretend to rape me. I remember looking up for help at a classmate, but since she found both of us repugnant, all she did was grimace and walk out of sight. At some point that same year, I straightened my hair after letting it grow out to a decent length. I liked how it made me look, especially after people derisively told me I looked girly. For quite a while, a picture of me with straightened hair was my lock screen photo, and I would just stare at it. I straightened my hair several times again until I'd had enough of long hair and I cut it all off. When I was 15, I met someone who immediately activated my obsessive tendencies. It was not unlike what people mistakenly call love at first sight. But this is no fairy tale, and such a thing is only infatuation and obsession. Them and I were able to talk about the kinds of meta topics that most people eschew, and they seemed to truly enjoy my company. I showed them attention and became their friend, hoping they would develop feelings for me similar to the loaded feelings I already had for them. Eventually, I fucked up by knowing that they'd run away from home and concealing that fact as well as their location, only to later want to disclose it due to coming to understand the gravity of the situation. I don't know how I was painted in the chaos that followed, but I do know that they never spoke to me again, with kind words at least. I felt like I had lost something. I felt a huge emptiness inside me and I was depressed so deeply for many months. The sorrow changed me, whereas before I was never able to cry in movies, after this heartbreak my tears flowed freely. I cried myself to sleep so many nights simply not understanding how I'd done wrong and not knowing how I needed to be better and worst of all, not knowing why they seemingly hated me. Eventually I wrote down my feelings. I wrote down my obsession. I gave these words to people and they spread them around, not because they were enlightening or because they cared about my pain. They spread them around so that they could all laugh at me for being a, such a broken, obsessive individual. This is the first time I've tried writing about my own life ever since then. To fill the aching void, I became a fanatical Marxist-Leninist, which is a type of authoritarian communism. Hearing about the idea of a society without capitalism rung so true to my soul that I started wearing a red beret every single day to school, and every single day in general. 
I didn't really understand the implementation details or how it still required a ruling class and heavy bureaucratic authority, but I suppose this is true of all of those who support a derivative of Marxism-Leninism, considering how Marxist-Leninists invariably have their movements hijacked by bad actors or are themselves bad actors to begin with. I've gotten off topic. The reason why I want to talk about my foray into authoritarian communism was that it staunched the seeping of Nazism into my mind. Like many teenagers, especially those assigned male, I had found 4chan. This horrendous website is a recruiting ground for white nationalists. It is perfectly suited for this, because in a free-for-all setting, those who harm the most reign supreme. It's a rather common narrative in the trans woman community that Marxism-Leninism liberated their minds from Nazism because they are both driven by the same kinds of autocratic, nationalistic belief in establishing supreme authority and doing whatever the hell you want with it, while vilifying and disposing of people who are politically your enemies or simply easily scapegoats. Everyone likes to forget that queer people were sent to gulags just as we were sent to concentration camps, and barely anybody even remembers how anarchists were labelled counter-revolutionaries and slaughtered once we were no longer useful to the revolution. At 15, I moved out of my parents' home to the flat under my nonna's house. My father is a coward, by the way. Once testosterone was in my body and it was obvious I had the same natural ability to build muscle that he did, he stopped hitting me and instead turned to financial abuse. I relied on my father for a $100 per week allowance. With this money, I would get the bus to and from school buy food and movie tickets, went out with my friends and have a tiny bit left over that I would save. One day my father decided that I wasn't behaving well enough and the why isn't important and I don't really remember it myself. What I do remember is how he'd already imposed sanctions that meant I was now only getting 80 per week, meaning I still had enough to live but definitely not enough to also put some away. This was stressing me out already and he decided to impose further sanctions. I remember him saying it was down to 60, and I exploded in rage. I screamed at him about unfairness, and the next word out of his mouth was 40. I'd had enough. I'd had so much more than enough. I was so sick of him and his abuse. I sat there thinking, deliberating. At the next corner, when we were uncomfortably close to a truck in our left lane, I grabbed the steering wheel and I held it with all of my little strength. He tried to pry my grip loose, but he knew that using too much force could send us to our deaths. I remember the look of terror in his eyes, and I remember my own delight that after all those fucking years of being treated like a burden, like I was broken, like I was a disappointment, after all that time I finally got to my father to feel the terror I felt the day he left me on the side of the road at seven years old. I held the wheel firmly and true until we were around the corner and he punched me in the ribs as I let it go. He pulled over the car and got out and started walking. I got out and enacted the plan I'd thought up before I grabbed the wheel. I told him that things could go back to how they were, but I needed him to stop abusing me financially. He agreed. We got back in the car, and we never spoke of that day again. At 16, I had my first sexual relationship. It was so incredibly dysfunctional and abusive. We were both miniature versions of everything wrong with our parents. We would fight about the most inane things and usually I was the one totally in the wrong. But my partner would hit me and this really muddled my clarity on right and wrong. I was intensely verbally abusive, mimicking my mother. 
but I used to shrug off all the physical abuse against me because I thought that it didn't hurt to be hit by someone with so little physical strength. I didn't hear the sound of my mind creaking under the weight of all of this cruelty I'd been shown, and even more so the cruelty I was showing others. I didn't even realize that this wasn't a person I felt cared for me, but simply a person I felt I wanted to care for in the hope they might care for me. After our relationship was over, I craved having them back, and I tried to manipulate them into wanting me back. I felt so unlovable that in my mind, the only person who could possibly love me was someone who had done so many wrong things in my presence. I still retain quite the mental scar about having my face slapped, as I'm sure they retain mental scars about having their intellect questioned, their interests diminished, and being told to be silent. I left that relationship a much crueler person than I had entered it, having felt justified in my unwillingness to compromise my opinions. At 18, I was pursued by a woman five years older than me. I did not treat her well, but I treated her much better than her previous partner, and so she admired my behavior in spite of my many abusive flaws. I was cruel to her, and I did not care to understand why some things upset her so much more than they upset me. She wanted to get engaged. She took me to look at houses we could buy in suburbia, and I freaked out and withdrew. Around the same time, I realized I could have romantic feelings for multiple people. When I tried to discuss being polyamorous, she took it as being a breakup, and the only two options she gave me were staying monogamous or breaking up with her, and I nearly did break up with her, but I backed out at the last moment because at heart I am a coward, afraid of being alone, just like my father. I pretended I was still invested in our relationship, but soon after I met someone while playing online games. She lived a state away and I really liked constantly chatting with her. Everyone knew what was happening before even I did, Alexithymia, remember? Because I did not keep it under wraps that I had made a new friend. Before long, I'd developed feelings for her, but in my desire to have my cake and eat it too, I hurt my girlfriend by staying with her even though I no longer loved her, and I hurt this new woman by spurning her affection in favor of a dead relationship. That relationship ended with a whimper. One morning, my girlfriend just said, I think we should break up, in a tone so flat that you could feel the exhaustion wash over you. I agreed, and that was it. At 20, I learned I was trans. This was welcome news to my escapist tendencies, and I poured every part of myself into my newfound gender identity. I eschewed every masculine trait I had, though I've come now to realize I do enjoy many of them. It is often said that trans butchers transition twice, and I can say that this is so true for me. I know now that I'm a butch, and that I am woman-aligned, but not at all a woman. But the dresses I wore and the name I chose were very important and necessary parts of my transition. There is no way I could have gone directly from who I was then to a butch because I didn't know enough about how I related to womanhood yet. Merely that I did. I know now that I see myself in a supportive and protective role for my fellow queers. But back then I really wanted a crack at being a woman. It looked so much better than the hell of being a man. And honestly, it was. As a woman, I was catcalled, I was assaulted, and I was intimidated. But it was so much better than pretending to be a man. I'm sure my repulsion from maleness was multifaceted. It represented the men that had hurt me. It represented how I hurt others and was becoming like these men, both in spirit and in body. And perhaps worst of all, it just felt so very dysphoric for my body to be losing its softness. 
I didn't know that dysphoria could be so nuanced, so it took me a while to realize that I'd been feeling like that since I was around 18 and my beard grew in along with my skin becoming noticeably less soft. The concept of passing made my dysphoria so very much worse, though. After only a few years of just not being able to attain this bullshit thing, facial hair on other people would give me dysphoria, crippling dysphoria. It was truly, like... The kind of thing where I would I would have to go and have like a miniature panic attack if like someone's facial hair was just like it reminded me too much of mine or reminded me too much of how mine was or any bullshit like that really. Finally embracing my non-binary identity rather than this trans feminine faceting of who I am was what broke the spell. I'm quite starkly non-binary with my short hair, deep voice, large breasts, hairy legs, soft skin and smattering of fine facial hair. I never could have imagined coming back to enjoying facial hair, but here I am. I love what's left of my facial hair, precisely because it is soft now after all of those laser sessions, and sparse so that I don't have to feel like it overwhelms the shape of my face. Another thing I never could have imagined coming back to enjoying is he, him pronouns, but they make so much sense to me now that I've played with them and enjoyed them. Being called sir or being misgendered with pronouns used to hurt me. But now I've taken that back. Instead of hearing, I see you as a man when someone calls me sir, I hear, I don't know what someone like you could be other than a man. And that doesn't hurt. I hear an acknowledgement of this soft and careful masculinity I've cultivated ever since my detoxification from the toxic masculinity that pervaded me before my transition. When I was 21, I got engaged for the first time and I've been engaged three times since. If that's not a red flag, then I don't know what is. After I began polyamory, it made things so very much worse. Suddenly I had the ability to pick and choose between multiple people who would give me affection and I could neglect those who had started seeing my abusive behavior and disordered attachment. My psychologist did not give me a diagnosis for it because I told her I was not seeking one, but I have textbook Gordon Line personality disorder. Let me count the ways. I'm a substance abuser and I'm not sober even now. I was extremely hostile to people who did the wrong thing but had good intentions as well as simply to anyone I projected my issues onto. I would impulsively make huge commitments and then out of fear of being abandoned, I would not correct myself when I realized the massive errors I had made. I would also try and please everyone and in doing so, I pleased no one at best and greatly upset and wounded everyone at worst. A good example of these prior two points was when a partner was upset that I had become the fiancé of another partner in spite of having been with them longer. So I invited them to be my fiancé too. And I stuck by it when they asked if I was sure even though I did not want to be their fiancé. I merely wanted them not to be angry at me. There would often be times where I would just take my current emotional state out on someone if they made a transgression that I deemed serious enough to warrant an injection of venom directly into their soul. I would do drugs given to me by strangers and then assert my autonomy to do so when confronted about it by my fiancé who wanted me to not die in some nightclub bathroom stall. I took a stance of bodily autonomy in that moment, but in doing so, I was breaking the contract of trying my very best to stay with her as long as I could. I would commit to what felt best in the moment because I had no foresight and more importantly, I did not want it. I would keep my promises that I knew would wear me down and I would make promises I couldn't follow through on because my impulsivity would get in the way yet again. 
I was constantly chasing new experiences so that I never had to look into my own pain. I told myself I had no pain and that others were just soft, weak, and needed to toughen up like I had. I was a terrible derivative of my mother's insidious desire to make people exactly like herself and my father's impulsive hedonism wrapped neatly together with a vicious temper. I would correct people in my life on their behaviour, tell them they were doing things wrong when often they were just doing things in their own way. This is a very common autistic trait, but it causes people harm nonetheless, and my having autism is an explanation, not an excuse. It was my personal responsibility to heal, and I shirked that responsibility with such fervour. I hurt everyone who ever truly loved me prior to my healing through a complete and total inability to realise why I was the way I was, as well as needing to numb myself and run from my pain as fast as I could in any direction open to me. Even when I did begin to change, I couldn't change fast enough, and I would have killed myself had I been alone when I was like this. Being alone felt like existing in a void that went on forever. There was no good solution, but I surely picked the worst possible in my choosing of polyamory. I no longer identify as polyamorous. I now identify as a relationship anarchist. I don't give people any labels other than friend, because it is to friendship that we bring the best of ourselves. I only want to be someone's friend because a friend does not have the patience for your bullshit, and I have so much bullshit even now. Even as I healed, I did so without true insight into what made me abusive. I learned what I th should think, how I should view the world through social justice lenses, but the very last thing I learned was the true forms of kindness and patience. For example, last year I had a friend who reminded me too much of myself before I started healing. I put up a boundary with that friend about sex and he didn't listen drunkenly trying to force himself upon me in spite of how I could have badly hurt him with our strength difference. In my frustration and furiousness at his behaviour, I played the psychologist, burrowing into his trauma from a seven-year-long codependent relationship and I intentionally triggered him repeatedly in a supposedly loving gesture to show him how badly he needed to heal. I know now that I wasn't being kind, I was being cruel. I was making him cry because I did not like the imposition on my body he had just attempted. Love and abuse do not coexist and this is a lesson I needed to learn so very long ago. Healing is a process and you cannot heal everything simultaneously. You'll triumph over one malady only to find three more taking its place. Healing from a brutal block of stone requires the patience and skill of a sculptor who should be you when you have the time and energy but also be others when you have the ability to reach out and get help. I refer to both friends and professionals. It was my psychologist who made me believe I could be worthy of healing, and it was my friends who made me believe that people would love me for myself if I were simply not so barbed, venomous, and unstable. I feel so free now that I'm having friendships that can naturally evolve to have romantic elements, if that feels right and then those elements can fade without it being the end of the world and without me acting accordingly as if it were. I still feel like my entire life ahead of me is going to be peppered by misdeeds, slip-ups, and being triggered into releasing my monster, but I believe in myself now. I just need to find a way past the hurt that I feel to know I hurt so many so badly. While I have failed more people than I can count, I truly see hope now. I am not fixed, but at least instead of the monolith of shame, I am now a duality that contains hope. 
While I am hopeful for my future, I cannot allow this hope to become complacency. I've decided that I am going to be the foremost expert on my childhood. In this, I can soothe that lonely inner child. Just as importantly, I need to become an expert on my monster. While I may have found a way to retract my claws and flatten my spines, I do so knowing well which events are likely to make them come back out with the speed of explosive bolts. I require space, a lot of it. I live in an apartment by myself and sometimes days can pass without me seeing another soul. I find this solitude quite relaxing and reinvigorating, but I also need human contact lest I become some type of hermit here in my tower writing words that will not change the past no matter how much I wish they would. I'm going to find strength and purpose in my isolation, but I'm going to seek out and create slow burn friendships with healthy boundaries now that I've read a few books on navigating life as an autistic person. I'm going to live for the very first time in my life. Well, that's the end of the scripted section, everyone. Thank you for listening. Um, I know that was a lot <laughs> for me, for me more so than you, but it's really freeing to say it. I, after reading so much blues and after reading uh, the Tomboy Survival Guide by Ivan Coyote, I just needed to tell a few tales in there. I needed to tell of how I was hurt and how I was a victim. I needed to say that I was a victim because it's just been something I've never really been able to say because to be a victim is to be powerless, to be a victim is to be all the other things that we associate with being a victim. It's, it's really hard to own up to the fact that people hurt you and that you didn't deserve it. Even if you were a bad person in other ways, you didn't deserve those things. Thank you for listening, everyone. I think we're going to do some stuff about like stone butchness in general next week, but I don't know. I might actually take a week break or I could publish an episode of my poetry. Now that you know all of my monstrous shit, you can hear about how BPD has torn me up inside and my obsession and all of that stuff before I got it under control. But it was really good to write it down before I got it under control because now I can look back and be like, holy shit, my emotions were like, storms my emotions were intense and like surely they will be intense again but just hopefully not about those things i've gotten tattoos to try and like seal those things inside me um thank you for listening this is yeah like i said it's the first time i've told a tale so vulnerable and i guess this is me getting ready for writing the book um writing the book about being assigned male at birth and being a stone butch because I'm going to talk about my vulnerability. I'm going to obfuscate it, obviously, because we're going to have a lot of different but extremely similar like experiences going into this book from me and other stone butchers who were assigned male. But, yeah, this was an important first step. It was an important first step to, for me to be able to say I was terrible. I was monstrous. I was... I was childish I guess yeah I was childish and it's it's just so freeing I already feel so much better and yeah thank you for listening
Our intro is a bespoke piece called Don't Be Shit by my dear friend Cassie Morgan. Cassie's Bandcamp can be found in the show notes. The outro is Hopefulness by Courtney Barnett. And hey, everyone, in this time where the world's going to shit, a lot of us trapped inside our homes because COVID-19, and I'm sure everyone's reaching a boiling point in their frustration and their, their loneliness, and I, I just want to say that now, more than ever, I'm glad that we have each other, but even more importantly, don't be shit. Take it.